God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we're going to be talking about time travel movies. So time travel, that's a topic that often comes up in Christian circles because often there's this claim that God is outside of time and that he could look into time and he could enter time at various points. He knows the future before the future happens and he's able to do things based on that knowledge of the future. And so what this does is this, just like all the sci-fi movies we're going to be talking about today, it introduces a lot of paradoxes, things that are impossible and things that are irrational. And it introduces this science fiction into Christian theology. And this is not theology that you get from the Bible. You don't get God peering into the future and then changing the past or you don't get God time traveling. You don't see God experiencing the past and the present in the same manner. You just don't see this in the Bible. And so this is just extra speculation that's brought to the Bible. And Roger Olson has a good article about unwarranted speculation and its uh, divine timelessness. He says, you know, that's just not in the Bible. And I don't know what it brings to the text. I don't know what it does for us, but it's just speculation. So I'm a big fan of sci-fi movies, and uh, if you're big on not having spoilers, probably this is not the episode for you, because a lot of these sci-fi movies that depend on time travel have these little twists in them where, you know, they, they reveal these how things work, and then uh, the audience is all has to think about it for a while, and, you know, that's the big thing that it leads up to. So there's going to be plenty of spoilers in this episode. But uh, we're just going to talk about the physics and the concepts of time travel through use of these movies. So the spoilers are not avoidable. So one of my favorite movies of all time is 12 Monkeys. And this stars Brad Pitt. And Bruce Willis is a time traveler who meets him. And Bruce Willis is sent into the past. And his mission is to figure out where this global plague has come from that has destroyed all of mankind, you know. And he's looking for the source so that they could, in the future get a solution. And the physics of this time travel are such that he cannot change the past. His mission is not to stop the virus from propagating, because that's already done and gone. And in this time travel physics, you cannot change the past. It just can't happen. And so what they're trying to do is get things from the past to help them in the future. This movie plays really heavily on the Cassandra paradox. And this Cassandra paradox is a Greek paradox in which there's a woman who's able to predict the future and warn people about what's happening, and no one believes her. And true to that nature, Bruce Willis, when he first goes back in time, he is instantly committed to an insane asylum. And so throughout the movie, he has to try to figure out if he's actually insane or if he's not insane. And the movie, one of the things I like about it is it attacks modern psychology, where psychology is this religion, and the psychologists tell us, who's crazy and who's not, and that's very arbitrary. And so that's just one of the good elements in this movie that makes it worth watching. So throughout this movie, Bruce Willis has all these dreams, and he has dreams about this woman with blonde hair, and he has dreams about this guy getting shot and stuff like that. And it turns out, in the end, that uh, when he tries to escape off with her and go live their own lives uh, on an island free from the plague, You know, he's trying to escape from the future. And this ends pretty badly for him, and he's shot to death. And as he's dying, he sees a younger version of himself, 
who was in the airport while he was getting shot. So the dreams he was having were memories from when he was a kid, and when he was a kid, he watched himself get shot to death. And so that causes this loop that, uh, you know, now the kid's going to grow up having these dreams and go back in time and then watch himself uh, get killed again, you know. It's just always happening. So in N12 Monkeys, the physics kind of work for the movie. Time travel is not very precise. So you can't just load up a certain time frame with a bunch of people because when you're sending someone back in time, they might just go anywhere. And this is how you avoid people being sent back on top of each other and just loading up the past with a whole bunch of time travelers trying to do stuff, you know. It doesn't work like that because just the mechanics of sending people back in time are imprecise and you could get around that contradiction in uh, this loop that's being caused. Because if you could just take like thousands of people from the future and send them all back to the same point of time in the past, you know, and then, then farther in the future you could send even more people and more people from the future, then it becomes very unbelievable that, you know, you're going to get the same causal chain of events to get to those people being sent back into the past. And that's what this movie relies on is a static timeline that cannot be altered. And so they have to build a mechanic that invalidates that, that probability. So time travel has to be sketchy. Um, only a limited amount of people can go back in time. And their actions all have to be predestined and set in fate. So the Cassandra paradox, it comes in play because James Cole, the Bruce Willis character, he's having these dreams, and these dreams are not able to warn him about what's going to happen. And he's forced to go through this casual loop countless times. It just cycles. So 12 Monkeys, in order to work, it has to assume away free will. Sending someone into the past can't alter anything, and that has to be part of the established timeline. So without the ability to act, to do something new, nothing can happen that hasn't already happened. But you also have to assume that more time travelers can't be sent back at later dates to complicate matters to the same time. Because there's an infinite future in front of us, and so that gives you an infinite number of people that can go back in time. And it really complicates matters. And so in that timeline, if they want to try to make it make sense, they have to like destroy time travel somehow in the future so that these future time travelers can't go back and complicate matters. That's the only, only way a movie like this is going to work with a set and established timeline. So the Cassandra Paradox... Christians should take note about the Cassandra Paradox. And the Molinists, they say God knows the future, and God knows every possible future. But can God warn people about what will happen? In Molinism, that can't be a possibility, because God knows the future. He also knows all the alternatives. But if God tells someone what will happen, can that person choose to do something else? Or are they fated to do what God knows will happen? Is that a possibility? Can, can God tell people what he knows in the future that will happen, and then can they change it? With a set future, it doesn't matter if you're a Molinist. It doesn't matter if you're an Arminian. It doesn't matter if you're a Calvinist. If someone tells you a set future in any of those systems, you, have, you are powerless to change it because that future is known. It doesn't do any good just to say that, oh, you know, that was a possible future, and now you're free to subvert it. 
Because then the future was not known, was it? God wasn't telling you what will happen, was he? If you were able to subvert what will happen. And God would probably be lying, or you have to really resort to open theism. Neo-Molinism is the open theist version of Molinism, where God knows all possible futures and then waits to see what we decide to take. But God knowing the future, it creates paradoxes that just don't work. And it's a rational concept, at least when coupled with free will. I mean, in Calvinism, if the Calvinist believes that everything is fated, then sure, God could tell people the future and then they cannot subvert it because they're fated to do otherwise. So the next movie we're going to be talking about is Edge of Tomorrow. And if you've ever seen Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, this is the sci-fi version of that. In, a, in this movie, Tom Cruise plays this reluctant soldier. And uh, he gets uh, blasted with this like time travel substance. And so it turns out that whenever he dies, he resets the clock on his day. You know, And so just like in Groundhog's Day, every day he wakes up anew and does everything the same way again. In this movie, every time Tom Cruise dies, he wakes up and he has to try to relive his day and figure out the optimal steps to take in order to get what he wants to do done. You know, he wants to get rid of this this time travel stuff. He wants to get rid of the enemy that they're fighting. He wants to try to solve these mysteries. And he wants to learn how to fight. So he spends days training, and he spends days fighting, and, uh, you know, stuff like that. And in this movie, this movie relies very heavily on fatalism. And so you you see scenes of him, and he is running through this war zone, and he is timing out every single event, and he's timing out every single left step, every single right step, to try to figure out the best way to get through his day. You know, stuff like that. Just think about it. How easy is it for us to do the exact same thing in the exact same manner day after day? You have to assume away the butterfly effect where, you know, small little changes that you do, small movements, they they can't affect the overall narrative of the day and they can't have this effect that moves out and forces everyone to move in a different fashion. For example, one scene the main protagonist, Tom Cruise, he covers up a poker game that would have been found otherwise. And the day plays out basically the same way as it would have if he had just let that poker game be found. So this movie works for what it sets out to do, and it only works through fatalism. Every single person, every single thing on Earth is seen as an input-output device. If you put certain inputs into someone, if you put certain inputs into the world, then certain things are fated to happen. There's no free will. And basically, if someone had like a super sophisticated program that just replicated someone's internal nature, like let's say you transfer someone completely to a computer and then run through various input outputs into that thing, you'll, you'll be able to determine the results. In the world of Edge of Tomorrow, people are not conscious thinking beings they're just robots acting on input and output based on conditions that were programmed into them through some sort of nature effect. They, they do not have uh, free wills, and they can't decide for themselves various things. So literally in the movie, Tom Cruise has to troubleshoot the various inputs and outputs in order to get people to do what he wants them to do. And they work on a consistent basis if he does the same thing 
time and time again. So it's fatalism and people are robots. So some Christians think that this is how people actually operate. They say, you know, when God's testing Abraham to know his heart, they say, doesn't God already know his heart? Doesn't he already know what kind of things will come out of Abraham if he puts various inputs into Abraham? They think that God being able to look at a heart, he should be able to know how they respond to every single circumstance ever, as if people were these robots, these machines, which have code, and all you have to do, you don't even have to test the person through, you know, external experiences. You could run simulations in a simulator, just taking that person's makeup and then injecting various scenarios in it, and you know what they do. This this is robotics. This is not free will. This is very mechanical, and Christians believe this is the way that the world operates. But in the Bible, the world doesn't operate like this. God doesn't know people's hearts unless he tests those hearts. And he's often testing people to see what they will do. You know, King David says, test me and know my heart. King David is not under the assumption that God, like, meticulously looks into our hearts and knows all the programming coding and stuff like that and knows how we're going to respond to every single situation. And the normal biblical idea is that God injects tests. So in Deuteronomy, we come across this verse in Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, to testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You know, it's not a foregone conclusion of what people are going to do, even by just looking at their current state of being. You know, that's that's not uh, something that the Bible endorses as reality. It's something that Christians impose into the Bible based on this faulty understanding of human nature and how hearts operate. But it's not a biblical understanding. It's not a Jewish understanding. It's just modern science fiction. So the next movie we're going to talk about is called Predestination. And there's some adult themes in this movie, so take care when you're watching it. Just keep that in mind. And I'm going to super spoil that movie right now. The entire movie is about this person, and this person is able to impregnate themselves and then give birth to themselves. So it gives a whole new meaning to I'm my own grandpa. But this movie's about a paradox. And this paradox is that this person, this being, they would not have existed if they didn't make themselves exist. They're spawning themselves into existence through this time travel mechanic. So think about it. how did this person come into existence? They grew up, they time traveled back to an earlier point of time, they impregnated themselves, they had themselves, and that baby was transported into the past, which just completed the cycle. There's no outside influences on this cycle, and so they're spawning themselves into existence. How is this not possible, let's say, if God is outside of time? and God's able to enter time at various points in history, how can something like this not be true that people can spawn themselves into existence through some of these time travel paradoxes? After all, you have this loop where God can actually do that. God could just enter time wherever he wants and then supposedly exit time again. You know, God could create all sorts of these time travel paradoxes if he wants where things or events are spawning themselves. Like our other time travel shows, this really has to rely on fatalism. The person who's time traveling has to always decide in the same manner 
to complete the loop, or otherwise the loop doesn't complete and the things don't happen and the paradox is broken. So fatalism has to happen in all these time travel scenarios so far. What this tells us is in Arminianism, in Molinism, in Calvinism, if the future is known, there has to be fatalism. People have to be input-output robots. Their decisions have to be a function of the inputs upon them. They have no free choice, and they can't do otherwise than what the conditions and events impose upon them. Molinism was really invented to try to get around this problem that fatalism must be necessary. And in Molinism, they suggest that God knows all possible futures and what everyone's going to do in every situation, something like that. But, you know, if God does know the future, if he knows which routes are going to be taken, you know, this implies input-output on these robot creatures, that the future can be known. Just saying that God knows possibilities of what would happen in certain circumstances if people took certain choices, that does not work because that does not solve the paradoxes that knowing the future brings to the present. If the future is known, fatalism is true. One last note that we need to make about this movie is just the concept that individuals can time travel and spawn upon themselves. Like, this person is time traveling back into a time that they already exist, and they're meeting themselves and interacting with themselves. Now, those who believe in an internal now or a divine timelessness, something like that, they believe that God can enter time. And uh, so God is able to interject himself in time and pick where he wants to go. Here's, here's the problem with that. It's kind of paradoxical. So if uh, God interjects himself in time on a Monday and then interjects himself in time on a Tuesday, then can himself from the Monday then meet himself on the Tuesday? You get these weird concepts where these creatures, uh, they spawn upon themselves and create multiple copies of themselves just because you're dealing with pliable time frames. So that, that is a question to the advocates of divine timelessness. What happens if God enters time on that Monday and then enters time on that Tuesday because he gets to decide when to enter time? Can Jesus then like meet himself? Is there like two Jesuses running around? You know, how does that work? And there's so many logical paradoxes and inconsistencies and, and just ridiculousness about time travel. And this is just like the tip of the iceberg. There's all sorts of other problems that can be occurring due to these events that relapse onto themselves and they can uh, create paradoxical loops, stuff like that. And this is what they have to maintain, that these things are possible or they have to explain how these things can work in order to maintain that there's any sort of concept of divine timelessness. They prefer to let all these questions go unanswered and they prefer a simplistic vision of timelessness and where God enters history at one point in time and you don't have these casual loops or the casual loops are hidden in the events of the Bible where you can't really detect them and you, they don't want to just think about what the problems are that are spawned by this. Of course, in the Bible, in the actual Bible, when God makes a prophecy, it's usually in a form of the warning, and usually the purpose of a prophecy is to avert that prophecy. So when God says to Nineveh, 40 days and you're going to be overthrown, this is not like a prediction of the future. This is not based on future foreknowledge. What it is is a divine judgment, and a judgment God would rather not do. 
And so if, if Nineveh had stayed wicked, God would have destroyed them. It would have been a future fulfilled prophecy, but they repented. And so the prophecy was averted and it was changed based on the actions of people. Because God gave them an insight into the future and they were able to use that insight into the future to affect their present actions. You don't get a sense of timelessness. You don't get a sense of fatalism. People are not input-output robots, not in the Bible. Instead, people are able to act dynamically in response to situations as they arise. So the next movie we're going to talk about is Donnie Darko. And now this is an older one. It's uh, one of my favorite movies. It's a great movie. And it's all about this concept of time where there's these worms, these four-dimensional worms that... Uh, that's that's how reality is presented, whereas we're not living in the current moment, but the, all moments are strung out uh, in this four-dimensional time. And we'll let William Lane Craig talk about this a little bit, and we'll see what he thinks about this worm theory before we talk about the movie. Dear Dr. Craig, according to the space-time interpretation of Einsteinian relativity, all objects, supposedly, exist as four-dimensional world tubes in space-time. Presumably, these world tubes are static, because I don't think Einsteinian relativity makes provision for their movement. The question then is, how do four-dimensional world tubes, which are static in space-time, give rise to what we observe as relative motion? Are there some mysterious dynamics supposedly at play here? Well, the idea here that he's talking about is that there really is no difference in reality between past, present, and future events. All events are equally existent. They're strung out like beads on a necklace, so to speak. And one end of the necklace is the beginning of time, say, and the other end of the necklace is the end of time. But all of the beads on the necklace are equally real. All of the events in time are equally real. And we think of ourselves as located on one of the beads and sort of moving along from one bead to a next. And the view here on a four-dimensionalist view is that that's an illusion of human consciousness, that this feeling of dynamic movement is simply an illusion of the human brain. In fact, we are, as he say, just four-dimensional space-time worms who are strung out for some finite duration or distance, rather, along the the necklace of events. And the idea that there is a privilege now or present or the idea that we're moving along the series of events is simply an illusion. I've never heard it referred to as world tubes. No, I haven't either, frankly. It's usually world lines or space-time worms, but I think you get the idea of what he's saying, so long as you don't think they're Mm. hollow. It's not like we're uh, soda straws that are strung out in in time, and I don't think that's what he meant. Well, I was just thinking of my daughter's hamster cage. That's what it sounded like, kind of a world of tubes there. So what we gain from this idea is a common illustration of how time works. Time is just not the here and now, but there's this fourth dimension, And all events, past and present, are seen as all actual reality, all at the same time. And it can be better visualized by intersecting paths of these time worms, like wherever we're going to walk, you know, that's where the time worm goes. And you really see this illustrated in the movie Donnie Darko. It's it's kind of uh, not 
central to the plot, but he's uh, in a house and this worm protrudes from his body and he really follows this path of this worm until he finds a key device that's essential to the plot being fulfilled. So in this time worm theory, he did not have a choice because that time worm theory was what he was going to do. And so him being privy to it wasn't able to change the events that were going to happen. And it looks like William Lane Craig, he really endorses this view in the clip that we played. He said, we really are these four-dimensional time worms. I don't know how this works with Molinism, that you have all these potential possible worming outs. But one of the concepts in this theory of time is that there is an actual reality that transcends the present now, and that's fixed. It's fatalism, and it's saying that these things have to happen, and all events exist as if they are reality. So talking about the future improbabilities, when God's talking about, you know, if the people are going to do X, then he's going to do Y. You know, if they're going to uh, worship him, then he's going to bless them. If they're going to reject him, then he's going to hurt them. All of those things, they're talking about possibilities. That has to be excluded by this uh, worm fourth dimensional time where everything is set in stone and everything is present reality. And the present, the current present that we experience is just an illusion. So the Bible doesn't talk like this at all. It talks about the world as if presentism was true, that all that exists is now, and there's no past, and there's no future, and the only thing that we could say is reality is in the present. The past is just a memory, and that's past is something to be referenced. We can't experience the past, we can't go into the past, and the future is full of possibilities and probabilities. That's how the Bible is written. So instead of this, these people that are obsessed with the worm theory of time, they think that everything is the same. The past, the future, and the present, it's only the same, and our current experience is an illusion. And so we're not really experiencing the presence. That's just, that's just a artifact of how reality works. You know, it's, it's not real though. It's an illusion. So we need to be very careful when we're discounting our own personal experience about how time works and then discounting how the Bible talks about experiencing time and how the future is experienced and how the past is experienced. And we need to be careful when we are trying to trump that and propose an alternative theory of time that is supposedly believed by God in the Bible and the authors of the Bible that there's no mention of in the Bible. But Donnie Darko, the movie, it presents this uh, different type of time travel, a time travel that we see within other movie universes, like the Star Trek uh, reboot, where an alternate universe is spawned when time travel is involved. So the entire movie of Donnie Darko takes place in an alternative universe, and the point of this universe is to make sure that the primary universe does not collapse. And so the goal of a lot of the protagonists, the people who have died in the alternate universe, they're trying to guide our protagonist into saving the primary universe by sending an object back in time. But it's not really like back in time because the present universe did not occur yet. And we're only experiencing the events in the alternative universe. So he needs to take this object and send it back to the primary universe at the point where that object was leaving that universe. And that's how a lot of movies get around time travel. When they time travel, they're not actually affecting the current timeline. 
they're spawning alternative universes and those timelines are being affected. That way you avoid a lot of the paradoxes of going back in time and undoing events. You can't time travel and go kill your mom who's going to give birth to you and thus invalidating your own existence because you're coming from an alternate universe where your mom did have you to the other universe where she didn't have you yet and you're killing that universe's birthing of you. So the alternative universe time travel stuff that makes a lot more sense logistically in how that works and that does not have to introduce fatalism into the mix as all these other time travel movies have to in order to make logical sense. But none of these Christians who want to introduce timelessness into the biblical model, none of them want to propose this non-timeless factor where alternative universes are spawned when time travel is attempted, where timelessness is attempted. They want some sort of present reality with our current timeline being unchanged and interaction with a timeless God. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make logical sense. It doesn't doesn't have any mechanics of how it could work. And they say that God enters time. How does God enter time? How does a timeless, immutable, simple, pure acity being enter time? It's just not logically conceivable. And so the entire timeless claim, it breaks down logically when examined. It doesn't make any sense. And all these time travel movies, they really illustrate the problems with time travel and and how they are trying to force this time travel to operate in order that their movie stays logically coherent. It's just a really hard thing to do and time travel movies often break down logically in, in how they operate. So today's episode was a little bit different. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have any comments, you could comment on the God is Open website or our companion Facebook group page, God is Open. Thank you for listening.